This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Infection Control in Bundles in the Medical Surgical ICU by Deb Morrow. Hi, my name is Deb Morrow and I am a Staff Nurse 3 and the Infection Prevention Coordinator in the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Children's Hospital Boston. Today I'm going to be discussing methods that we use to prevent the development of healthcare associated infections in the pediatric intensive care units at our institution. Healthcare associated infections. What is a healthcare associated infection? These have been defined by the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention as a condition resulting from an adverse reaction to an infectious agent or its toxin. There must be no evidence that the infection was present or incubating at the time of admission to the hospital unless the infection is related to a recent admission or a procedure such as a surgical site infection. Infections are considered healthcare associated if the infection was not present on admission and it occurs on or after day three of hospitalization. A device associated infection occurs when an indwelling catheter is in place. The infection was not present at the time of the catheter placement and it cannot be related to an infection at another site. Examples of indwelling catheters are central venous lines, endotracheal tubes, and urinary catheters. The device must be in place for two days with the day of insertion being day one for an infection to be considered device associated. Healthcare associated infections are a major cause of death and disability worldwide and cost billions of dollars. For example, in Mexico, healthcare associated infections are the third leading cause of death for the entire population. The cost of these infections equals 70% of the entire budget of the Ministry of Health. In Brazil and Indonesia, more than half of neonatal patient admissions get a healthcare associated infection with mortality rates between 12 to 52%. And in the United States, a study on clinical and economic outcomes of healthcare infections showed that sepsis and pneumonia added more than $8 billion to the cost of healthcare and caused more than 48,000 deaths. Mortality rates were highest for patients who developed sepsis and pneumonia after surgery. What is needed for an infection to occur? There are three basic elements needed for infection. First, there must be an infectious agent, such as a bacterium, virus, fungus, parasite, or prion. 
Sources of infectious agents include humans, animals, and the environment. Second, there must be a person who is susceptible to the infectious agent. And finally, the mode of transmission is the way that an infectious agent gets to a susceptible host. The mode of transmission is the element, the key element, in breaking the cycle of infection. Most infection prevention practices are designed to target this element. It is important to remember that in pediatrics, newborns have immature immune systems and cardiac patients may have other conditions such as a splenia or DeGeorge syndrome which increase the risk for infection. The three most common interventions that increase the risk for healthcare associated infections in the pediatric intensive care unit are the use of central venous lines, mechanical ventilation, and total parenteral nutrition. Hand hygiene. Therefore, the World Health Organization has made improving hand hygiene the focus of its program to reduce healthcare-associated infections. Hand hygiene means clean your hands using antiseptic soap and clean water or an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Hand hygiene compliance not only protects patients, it protects doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers. For more than 15 years, the World Health Organization has recommended the use of alcohol-based hand sanitizers as the primary form of hand hygiene in healthcare settings. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers have been shown to remove organisms more effectively, require less time, and cause less skin irritation than hand washing with soap and water. Soap and water should always be used when hands are visibly soiled, the patient has Clostridium difficile, or another infection caused by spore-forming bacteria such as anthrax, before eating and after using the restroom. This World Health Organization poster shows the five moments for hand hygiene. Number one is before patient contact. Number two is before an aseptic task such as changing a dressing or touching an intravenous catheter. Number three is after exposure to body fluids. Number four is after patient contact. And number five is after contact with the patient's surroundings. Doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers should also remember to perform hand hygiene when moving from a contaminated body site to a clean body site, and before and after diaper changes, dressing changes, ostomy care, endotracheal tube suctioning, and oral hygiene. Doctors and nurses often forget that after stepping away from a patient 
and performing other tasks in the room, such as charting. They must clean their hands again before touching the patient. Other important aspects of hand hygiene are to dry your hands before patient contact. Moist hands transmit more microorganisms. If you use soap, it should be from a dispenser and the use of individual hand towels or either paper or cloth is recommended. If bar soap is used, it should be kept in a holder that allows it to dry in between uses. Fingernails should be kept short and artificial nails should not be worn by doctors, nurses, or other healthcare workers who take care of patients. Hand hygiene and the use of gloves was a large part of the teaching program here at Children's. Gloves do not provide complete protection against hand contamination. Therefore, the use of gloves does not replace the need for careful hand hygiene. Gloves can be contaminated when putting them on and hands can be contaminated when removing dirty gloves. So hand hygiene is necessary before and after wearing gloves. Gloves should always be changed between patients and between contact with patient supplies or environment. Gloves should be worn for one procedure only and then changed. And if possible, do not reuse gloves. Central Line Insertion Bundle. The Central Line Insertion Bundle includes hand hygiene, which is the basis of all infection prevention initiatives, the use of chlorhexidine for skin antisepsis, a Central Line Insertion Checklist, a Central Line Insertion Kit or Cart, and the use of maximal sterile barriers. The final bundle component is to empower doctors and nurses to stop the procedure if they notice a break in sterility. Communication training may be necessary so that doctors and nurses are comfortable intervening. Their observation should be acknowledged by the practitioner and the procedure halted until the issue is corrected. Research demonstrates that chlorhexidine is a superior agent for skin antisepsis. Chlorhexidine has a 48-hour residual action when left to dry on the skin. If chlorhexidine cannot be used because it is not available or the patient has an allergy, the use of alcohol or povidone iodine remains acceptable. Allow all agents to dry completely before catheter insertion. A central line insertion checklist should include all the infection prevention practices for sterile catheter insertion. This checklist should be completed by a member of the team not directly involved in catheter insertion. The procedure should be stopped if any infection prevention practice is not observed. Our central line insertion kit 
includes all the supplies needed for line insertion. The use of a kit or a cart will prevent breaks in sterility, which could occur when doctors or nurses are missing supplies. Maximal sterile barriers are defined as the doctor or nurse wearing a cap, mask, sterile gown, and sterile gloves. We also include eye protection to protect the doctor or nurse from potential blood exposure. The patient must be fully draped and the sterile field established before the procedure begins. All doctors and nurses directly assisting with the procedure must also observe maximal sterile barriers. Other assistants should wear a mask if they are further than three feet from the procedure. Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia Prevention Bundle At Children's Hospital Boston, we have developed a bundle to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, which includes hand hygiene, which is the cornerstone of every infection prevention initiative, elevating the head of the bed 30 to 40 degrees, oral hygiene, a daily sedation break, and a daily assessment of need for the endotracheal tube. Elevating the head of the bed 30 to 40 degrees will prevent secretions from collecting in the subglottic area and will prevent aspiration of fluids from the stomach. Infants in isolettes should be in a reverse Trendelenburg position. Use of a cuffed endotracheal tube will also prevent colonized secretions from entering the lungs. The posterior pharynx should be suctioned on a regular basis and before changing a patient's position to remove secretions. Oral hygiene is very important. During severe illness, the predominantly gram-positive bacteria in the mouth switch to predominantly gram-negative bacteria. Gram-negative bacteria thrive in plaque, which can build up on teeth in as little as three days. The process of chewing facilitates the production of saliva, which is a natural antibacterial. However, many patients in the intensive care units are unable to eat. Saliva production can also be decreased by the use of oxygen therapy, antihypertensives, anticholinergics such as atropine sulfate, sympathiomimetics such as dopamine, antihistamines, and diuretics. Oral hygiene keeps mucosa and lips clean, soft, moist and intact, and removes debris and plaque without damaging the mucosa. At Children's Hospital Boston, we brush teeth and gums with toothbrush, toothpaste, and sterile water every six hours. If a patient does not have teeth, we will use a gauze with sterile water and rub all the surfaces of the gums, tongue, and mouth every six hours. The subglottic area should be suctioned before position change 
and every four hours to prevent the buildup of secretions in the posterior pharynx. It is also important to drain the ventilator tubing away from the patient so that contaminated fluid from the circuit does not enter the endotracheal tube. We identify a respiratory plan at patient rounds using a daily goal sheet. When patients are stable, sedation medications are decreased and paralytic medications are halted to assess the patient's stability and respiratory status. If a patient is able to maintain adequate ventilation and vital signs, sedation will be decreased or stopped. It is important that the bedside nurse be part of these discussions. Urinary Tract Infection Prevention Bundle At Children's Hospital Boston, our urinary tract infection prevention bundle includes the following components. Hand hygiene, which is the basis of all infection prevention initiatives. Inserting catheters only when medically necessary, as defined by the hemodynamically unstable patient with the need for strict intake and output. The chemically paralyzed patient or deeply sedated patient who is unable to void spontaneously. The patient with a wound or breakdown in the sacral area or the patient with physical obstruction of the bladder. Catheter insertion is a sterile procedure and catheters should only be inserted by educated personnel. We have a urinary catheter insertion kit which has all the supplies needed for catheter insertion. Having a kit will prevent breaks in sterility, which could occur when doctors or nurses are missing supplies. There is also a maintenance component of our bundle. Studies show that daily cleaning of the urinary catheter itself contributes to an increase in urinary tract infection. Therefore, gently clean the skin of the urethral area, especially after bowel movements in the diapered patient. Use a closed drainage system that hangs below the patient's abdomen so urine does not collect in the catheter or the catheter tubing. And do not lift the tubing or bag above the patient so that urine refluxes back up into the bladder. The tubing catheter connection should not be broken, for example, to untangle the catheter. And if it is, disinfect the connection with alcohol first. If we feel that a urinary catheter may be malfunctioning, we would choose to replace the entire system rather than introduce bacteria through repeated irrigations. We also do not require that urinary catheters remain in place because the patient has a femoral line. The use of a daily goal sheet, which includes a section on indwelling catheters, is a powerful reminder to doctors and nurses to assess the continued need for the urinary catheter every day. Our daily goals sheet contains a column that identifies the number of days the catheter has been in place and if a catheter must remain in place, the daily goal addresses strategies for catheter removal. Early urinary catheter removal 
is the number one intervention to prevent the development of urinary tract infections. Bladder scanners have proven to be a valuable tool to aid in decision-making around urinary catheter insertion and maintenance. Using a bladder scanner to assess bladder volume can prevent unnecessary catheterizations. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.